Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 29. Today we travel back to the very beginning and explore Conan Doyle's first published work, The Mystery of Sasasa Valley, from 1879. And here's Paul to lead us into the story. Tom Donoghue and Jack Turnbull are down on their luck. Having failed to qualify as barristers in England, they have turned to prospecting in South Africa with no greater success. But one stormy night, their pal Dick Wharton visits them with a strange tale of a red-eyed demon on the veldt. His fantastic yarn excites Tom beyond its intrinsic merits and energises him into a bustle of activity. Jack is mystified until the night that he and Tom go out in search of the demon. Now we know a fair bit about the writing of this story thanks to surviving letters and to the work of Conan Doyle's bibliographers John Michael Gibson and Richard Lancelin Green. Um, Sasasa Valley was written while Conan Doyle was still a student at Edinburgh University, although he wasn't actually in Edinburgh at the time. Uh, during his studies, he took the occasional apprenticeship with uh, uh, doctors across the country to gain experience and pay his way. And one of those he often resided with was Dr. Reginald Ratcliffe Hoare of Clifton House, Aston Road in Birmingham. Uh, Ratcliffe Hoare had what Conan Doyle described as a five-horse city practice, which kept the young student working from morning to night. Conan Doyle got on very well with the Ratcliffe Hall family and said later that his role was soon rather that of a son than of an assistant. And in fact, he enjoyed a long correspondence with Ratcliffe Hall's wife, Amy, for, for many years. And it was in 1879, while he was working in Birmingham as an apprentice, that Conan Doyle was prompted to pick up his pen. And in his autobiography, Memories and Adventures, he wrote... It was in this year that I first learned that shillings might be earned in other ways than by filling files. Some friend remarked to me that my letters were very vivid, and surely I could write some things to sell. The remark of my friend, who was by no means given to flattery, took me greatly by surprise. I sat down, however, and wrote a little adventure story which I called The Mystery of the Sasasa Valley. To my great joy and surprise, it was accepted by Chambers Journal, and I received three guineas. It mattered not that other attempts failed. I'd done it once and I cheered myself by the thought that I could do it again. Now that uh, friend that he mentions there, we believe is uh, Ratcliffe Hoare's nephew, Rupert, who was another of the doctor's assistants at the time. And he'd been impressed by Conan Doyle's vivid letters and also by some stories that Conan Doyle had written for Rupert's children, which of course sadly no longer exist. 
Conan Doyle's reference there to uh, other failed attempts is, is worth noting as well, since Sasasa Valley, while it was the first story to be published, was not the first story to be written or indeed submitted to a publisher. Um, the earliest submitted to a publisher, we believe, was The Haunted Grange at Gorsthorpe, which was rejected by Blackwoods uh, two years earlier in 1877. Uh, the manuscript for that was later discovered in the Blackwoods archives and published by the Arthur Conan Doyle Society in 2000. And it's worth just uh, pausing on that payment Conan Doyle received of three guineas because it might not sound like much, but at the time it was an enormous amount of money for a struggling apprentice doctor. Um, in that same chapter where he describes the writing of Sasasa Valley, he says that he was given two pence for lunch every day, which would buy him a mutton pie or a second-hand book from the neighbouring bookshop. So three guineas would have been 378 lunches or 378 books, and I guess we've all been there with that decision. The Mystery of Sasasa Valley, subtitled A South African Story, was then first published in Chambers on 6th of September 1879. And the story appeared anonymously, which was pretty common for the journals of the day and a source of frustration for many budding authors, although it has to be said Conan Doyle didn't object when one of his early anonymous stories was mistaken for the work of Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, and Conan Doyle's name was only really attached to Sasasa Valley in the 1890s when it started to appear in US editions, which capitalised on the success of, of Sherlock Holmes by reproducing some of his early work. Owen Dudley Edwards makes the point that Conan Doyle really prized this 6th September issue of um, Chambers Journal and poured over it for the other contributions. And he makes the observation that the first article in, in that issue, which is on the, the rather dry subject of land transfer, has uh, reference to the Dimsdale frauds. And he suggests that this might be a source for Dimsdale, the hero of the, fir the firm of Girdleston. Um, there are actually two other articles that follow that that are that are interesting as well. One of them, though, is The Brave Swiss Boy, which is a fiction translated from the German, which is about a herdsman's son living in the Bernese Oberland near Meiringen, um, which could well be an in influence on uh, the final problem. And the third piece in there, which appears immediately before Sasasa Valley, is called Glimpses of London, and is a description of walks around the city and many of the sort of locations that you would associate with the early Sherlock Holmes stories. And of course, we know that Conan Doyle based a lot of the locations in Study in Scarlet, the London locations in Study in Scarlet, on uh, um, second-hand information because he was less familiar about London. So here's another possible source of inspiration, all coming from this uh, quite amazing journal, Chambers Journal. Yeah, Cham Chambers's journal was was a real fixture of, of uh, Edinburgh cultural and, and intellectual life. Um, it had been founded in 1832 um, by, by the brothers William and Robert Chambers, who had both had separate bookstores in the city. Um, it, its first title was Chambers's Edinburgh Journal. Hmm. Uh, and this changed in 1854 to Chambers's Journal of Popular Literature, Science and Art. Uh, and then in 1899 to Chambers's Journal simple which i suspect people from 1854 onwards just called it chambers's journal yeah. anyway yeah um but this was one of the two main uh edinburgh journals the other being blackwood's magazine uh, blackwood's had the the greater prestige uh, but chambers is sold more copies um and um conan doyle was familiar with both these these magazines and he actually his great ambition had been to get into Blackwoods yes. um, because of its prestige, because they really um, carved a niche for themselves as well, doing mystery and supernatural stories. Yes. 
Um, and, and even Edgar Allan Poe uh, had been a, a fan of Blackwood's magazine. Um, but uh, as, as you mentioned, Mark, he, he submitted, it seems in about 1877, this uh, the story, the, the Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, uh, which then we, we don't know whether it was rejected or not, or it just no. sat in their files. Um, and I think his own Dudley Edwards said it might have been the, the simple reason that Conan Doyle hadn't put his return address, return address or yeah. any details. So they weren't able to get back in touch with him one way or the other. Um, so, so that, that sat there and it, that also casts a light. It's interesting with the wording, um, that you've, you've, you've quoted from Memories and Adventures where it seems Conan Doyle's almost doing a little bit of rewriting of his own history. Hmm. Uh, when he says it mattered not that other attempts failed, I had done it once and I cheered myself by the thought I could do it again. His wording isn't, it mattered not that other attempts had failed. Yes. He's he's making out that that yeah. Sasa Valley was was he hadn't thought about writing until he started writing Sasa Valley, so it, it is this this slight tweaking and reworking of of, of history along those lines, yeah. um, but nevertheless he he did well yeah. to actually get published in Chambers's because this was you know it wasn't easy to get into this magazine and to have this early try accepted and 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 published in Chambers's is it's it's a it's it's a great success, really. Yes, and and it, it, Chambers has went on to produce, well, to publish um, great great writers like Thomas Hardy, early works by Thomas Hardy, and I think uh, George Meredith. Yeah, but both their first works appeared in 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 Chambers's, so they debuted in the same magazine as as as, as Conan Doyle, or the other way round, perhaps. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and. Um, Later on, um, Doyle appeared three more times in, in the pages of, of, of Chambers's. Uh, the Surgeon of Gaster Fell, um, which was uh, published in December 1890, um, and later The Recollections of Captain Wilkie, uh, which appeared in, in, in the magazine in, in January 1895. Now, that's quite interesting in itself as well, because this is another early story. Yes. Um, and I think Richard Lanceling Green speculates... Uh, had Conan Doyle found this story himself in his files or had Chambers's gone back to their archives and found it and thought, oh, we know this guy now, we'll, we'll, we'll publish this. And I think that's the more likely solution. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but he also published a, 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 a real life crime story as well, uh, the, the Bravos of, of Market Drayton in <laughs> 1889. Um, but that was his lot with, with Chambers's. Um, and he only ever had one story appear in Blackwoods, mm. uh, which was The Physiologist's Wife, um, published in September 1890. And, and that's an interesting story for him to have published in Blackwoods because it absolutely isn't one of those mystery and gothic fictions that he really wanted to get in. Mm. 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 And it might seem a little odd that uh, Conan Doyle's first published story should be set in South Africa of all places. But in many ways, this was a, a very topical setting. Yes, um, particularly 1879. Uh, the, this is the year of the uh, the Anglo-Zulu War, mm. um, which had, had begun in January 1879 with the British invasion of Zululand. Um, and it came unstuck pretty quickly um, with the Battle of Isantuana on January the 22nd, uh, when a British column was, was essentially wiped out. This was quickly followed by the uh, the smaller Battle of Rourke's Drift, where the British, in a way, redeemed themselves. Um, and 11 of the defenders of this, this mission station, which 
most of us know through the film Zulu, yeah. um, 11 of the defenders won the Victoria Cross. Um, both Isantuana and Rourke's Drift were huge news stories. Uh, and there is a, a cynical view which could say the Victoria Crosses were to distract from Isantuana. Yes. Um, and then later in the war, on the 1st of June, um, another disaster brought it really back into the news with the, the death of the French or Bonapartist pretender, uh, the Prince Imperial Louis Napoleon. Mm who was actually killed by the Zulus, he'd, he'd been going along almost as a lark, <laughs> as an observer with the uh, the British army in Zululand and, and was caught on a patrol and, and killed by the Zulus, uh, which caused a, a, a major diplomatic incident and, and major news story. Um, all was kind of redeemed with the, the Battle of Alundi on the 4th of July, where the, uh, the British... Um, finally triumphed over the uh, over the Zulus, but it was it was a uh, not the greatest of victories. An ignominious, an ignominious. Yes, um, yeah. nothing nothing to be proud of particularly. <laughs> uh, but but this brought South Africa very much to the forefront in 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 the news. And if Conan Doyle was writing *Mystery of Sasa Valley* in perhaps summer late summer of eighteen seventy nine, this this would be very much. Uh, in in the forefront of the news, and uh, you know he 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 would be observing all this um, himself, and and you know with his interest in Napoleon and so on, maybe the story of the mm. Prince Imperial would really have caught his his imagination. So perhaps that's why he set this story in South Africa rather than in America or Australia, um, uh, and and just to give it that that topical edge. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and again, Conan Doyle is, is in some ways ahead of the time um, by writing this story set in South Africa, uh, because as a, a junior British official um, out in South Africa uh, at the time of the Zulu War, uh, H. Ryder Haggard, huh. uh, would in 1885 write King Solomon's Mines and really push South Africa um, and, and, and African adventure stories to the fore. Mm. Um, it, it's also interesting within this colonial perspective um to note that sasasa valley was um was was published on the 6th of september uh which is three days after the british diplomatic mission to kabul had been massacred um launching the second phase of the second afghan war which would then have another disaster the battle of Maiwand, at which a certain dr john watson was badly wounded and invalided home (laughs) in one of several limbs (laughs) And of course, Watson was uh, meant to have been out in Ballarat in, in Australia in the famous mining district. And the other reason why South Africa will have been in the news at this time was because of the immense uh, interest and explosion of interest in, in diamonds. Uh, South Africa had been a Dutch colony since the 1650s and then uh, transferred to Britain at the end of the uh, 18th century. Actually, it was lost during the Peace of Armenes, which we just followed in uh, in uh, a foreign office romance in the last episode uh, before it was it was retaken by the british in 1806 and it became a sort of self-governing part of the british empire in 1872 um but it was in the sort of mid to late 1860s that diamonds were discovered uh in kimberley uh which uh, led to this immense sort of rush of uh, prospectors from the early 1870s um uh, this was sort of exacerbated by uh, the discovery of gold in 1885 in that same year as Wright Haggard's novel comes out. Um, and uh, shortly after the, the First Boer War, where um, the discoveries were creating enormous tensions between uh, people in the in the region. In fact, the first diamond was discovered by accident. It was picked up 
by a Boer farmer's son. Um, and the children used to play with these sort of ugly stones on the banks of the Orange River uh, when a, uh, a neighbor, Van Niekerk, um, spotted the stone and thought that it might be worth something and took it back to London and discovered it was actually a, a diamond and worth about £500. Um, and uh, he then, the same Van Niekerk, had, a, had another uh, great stroke of luck in 1869. Um, and it's from all of this that uh, these stories of um, uh, fabulous wealth uh, suddenly uh, started to proliferate. And, um, and they were true enough in the early days. Diggers using uh, picks and shovels could find diamonds lying very close to the surface. And it was said that, you know, uh, uh, you know it could be a, a day's work for a, a lucky prospector to suddenly earn, you know, 10 or find 10 or 20 diamonds. In fact, there's a story of a penniless Englishman who, who served one day in the area around uh, Kimberley, and uh, and covered a hundred and seventy five carat stone, which was valued at thirty thirty thousand um, pounds. But also, what happened as a result was that these small villages, which might have had one or two settlements or handful of families living there, suddenly became inundated with uh, um, uh, with uh, large numbers of prospectors, and and it soon shifted to this kind of almost industrial scale exploitation of um, uh, natural assets. Uh, uh, people like British uh, British businessmen like Cecil Rhodes and Barney Bernardo made their fortunes in Kimberley, um, and Rhodes established the De Beers Diamond Company in the in the early days of the uh, uh, of the rush there in um, in the eighties. And uh, Owen Dudley Edwards speculates that, that that Conan Doyle may have picked up information from South African students. Yes, at, at Edinburgh. So he may have had some some first hand information um, coming to him about this. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the diamond rush attracted all all, all kinds of, of of characters to South Africa. I mean, you just look at look at Rhodes and Bernardo themselves, mm. um, and and Conan Doyle in Sasa Valley. Uh, it, it's perhaps pointed that he, he makes um, Tom and Jack failed barristers. Yes, uh, the, these aren't a pair of, 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 of rough diamonds, to coin a phrase. Um, but the, the ones, I mean, later on, I, I, I think it's Jack apologizes to um, to his readers that that, that he, he's become a bit rough edged himself mm. um, by you know, the experience of, of being out in the diamond fields and, and mixing with some some very uh, very rough characters. Yeah. And we, we get this later on uh, again in in the Sherlockian canon um, in the, um, the the solitary cyclist, where Carruthers and Woodley mm. uh, are the, these these characters who come out from the um, from from South Africa and and from the diamond fields, um, you, you get the, the the impression certainly with Carruthers you don't get his full background but he's obviously got a bit of a polish about him. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas Woodley, of course, has, has <laughs> no polish whatsoever. Um, so, so again, I, th- I think Doyle is himself very interested in in the mix and how this, this is this is kind of a social leveler. Yes, uh, how how you can get you know, people from from a, a supposedly respectable background can come out penniless, and people from from a, the bottom of the social order can, as as you point out, possibly make thirty thousand pounds in a day. So yeah. it, it, it is it's obviously great uh, a, a great field for a novelist to work in. Yes, and I was reading a, an interesting article. I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes from um, 
uh, Isabel Hoffmeyer talking about the mining stories that actually came out of South Africa, so the ones written by people in South Africa and, the, and then syndicated around the world. And uh, and she sort of describes two phases of the, the mining story. The first of them is the kind of uh, penniless, down-on-their-luck um, traveller who earns success through perseverance and luck, basically. And she says that in that uh, in these earliest forms of stories with these characters, there's a lot of focus on that sole prospector, um, lots of legends and fables and superstitions and myths, which ties into the sort of ghost story element that we have within Sasasa Valley. Um, but she says that over time, the, the stories that came out of South Africa started to replace the honest digger with what she calls the gentleman pioneer, who uh, was more of a reflection of what was actually going on the on in the ground on the ground, which was this the um, uh, the influx of uh, of corporations to actually like the De Beers set up by by Cecil Rhodes to to uh, capitalize on this at scale, and uh, and she sort of brings in the gentleman pioneers as being a, a signifier, a sort of uh, politening up of of what was actually quite a, a an exploitative practice on the part of the corporations coming in to um, make. Um, use of uh, natural assets in, and indeed the, the local population as labour. And uh, interestingly, Sasasa Valley sits um, almost on the um, the changeover point between those two literary traditions coming out of South Africa in that um, Jack and Tom are, as you say, this sort of rather gentrified types, but they've they've almost gone backwards um, to, uh, to be the hard-drinking types who are... Um, uh, who are who are basically uh, when the story begins uh, contemplating leaving South Africa because the the, the three years of promise has has not really come true. Um, so it's an, there's an interesting set of literary traditions there that whether Conan Doyle was aware of them or not, it, it just happens that Sasasa Valley sort of sits into into that aspect of the tradition. And while we're on the subject of uh, the mining story of South Africa, you can't really. Uh, go off this topic without mentioning, br- talking briefly about uh, the aforementioned Cecil Rhodes, who obviously, you know, it's not so much the jury is out on him now, the jury is <laughs> well and truly decided. Um, but uh, Rhodes, in addition to being um, a, a prospector and uh, the former of the De Beer um, Diamond Company, which still exists to this day, uh, he entered the Cape Parliament in 1881 and became the uh, premier of uh, South Africa in 1890. And his tenure marked um, a period of um, huge expropriation of land from from black Africans, but also uh, essentially pushing um, uh, black people out of the electoral system in, uh, in South Africa by raising the, the amount of wealth required to be able to participate in the ballot. Plus, of course, the formation of Rhodesia and very aggressive policies into neighboring territories um and uh, he was forced to resign in 1896 after the disastrous jameson raid um uh, and his career never really recovered from that he he had a very weak heart and uh, uh died in poor health in 1902 i mean one of the lasting consequences of his uh, his immense wealth of course was the formation of the Rhodes scholarship at oxford which and one of the very early beneficiaries of that was uh, christopher morley um, the great, the great Sherlockian, and and indeed, I think his brothers were um, Rhodes scholars too. Um, and Conan Doyle has did make some comments on Cecil Rhodes, which now are, make very, very uncomfortable reading. Um, you know, he he first commented on Cecil Rhodes in an edition of the Great Boer War in 1901, in which he said that uh, 
Cecil Rhodes was a, a man of immense energy and one who has rendered great services to the empire. Um, and, and that the motives of his action are obscure. Certainly we may say that they were not sordid, for he has always been a man whose thoughts were large and whose habits were simple. And um, that sort of you know, inherent naivety, which we've touched upon several times with, with Conan Doyle, really comes out in the next quote, which I found quite shocking from our African winter in 1929, in which um, Conan Doyle describes going to Matopo Hills to see the grave of Cecil Rhodes. And uh, he's almost venerates Rhodes in, in this statement. He describes him as a difficult man to appraise with our little human yardsticks, as though he comes from a you know, greater plane of existence. And in fact, he goes on to say, heaven sent was Cecil Rhodes and heaven guarded above all human institutions is that British empire, which he did so much to extend. So I think, you know, Conan Doyle, very much a product of his time as we will, uh, as we appreciate. But I think uh, demonstrating uh, an immense naivety around Rhodes and uh, and Rhodes' legacy, which even in you know in 1901, let alone in 1929, was being openly questioned by some very prominent individuals, and and, and not just prominent individuals as well. It's it's a case in point that uh, when Conan Doyle volunteered to serve as a doctor in the Boer War, um, believing the cause of the Boer War was just, he was opposed by his mother. Yes who was very much against the Boer War and saw it as a war of imperial aggrand- uh, aggrandizement and, mm-hmm. and, and, and almost a, a land and a wealth grab. Yeah, yeah. It, all, it's, it certainly casts an interesting light on some of Conan Doyle's other fictions, um, things like The Lost World, where you get a sense of a, a slightly more uh, ambivalent view of empire. So the South African context comes out of the historical, but there's also a literary context to this story. And uh, being one of Conan Doyle's earliest works, there's plenty of evidence of him drawing on his childhood heroes and influences. And one of those that's really very pointed in this is is Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, yeah, like like Sherlock Holmes, you can always when you when you're talking about Conan Doyle, you can nearly always find your way back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe as <laughs> yes. well. Um, and and essentially, the, the in, in its in its substance and form, the mystery of Sasa Valley is is Doyle kind of reworking Poe's The Gold Bug. Mm. And of course, we've uh, mentioned this story before in the uh, in connection to the Captain Sharky tales. Yeah, that's with the um, the, the, the the pirate element of the Gold Bug. Um, uh, and when you you look at the the, the actual story structure of um, Mystery of Sasa Valley, it, it starts with with Tom and Jack uh, essentially hearing about the, uh, the, the 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 demon of Sasa Valley, the red eyed demon, um, which has been supposedly encountered by their pal Dick Wharton. And this sets Tom thinking because he, he's he's heard way back in in his past a similar story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, relating to a 17th-century Dutchman, Jens van Hoenem, uh, and and because he knows this story, Tom grasps what this this might mm. actually represent. Mm. Um, but he leaves Jack in the dark. Very, very Sherlock and Watson. This yes, very. Tom thinks he knows what's going on, and he will not share this with Jack. And then they undertake this 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 expedition out to find the into the Sasasa Valley and and um, Tom just brings Jack along and and a, a mystified Jack well I'll go along what, what's going on here and then all is revealed of course um, and the, the, you know, it's, it's similar to the Goldbug with the, with the Goldbug you have um, William Legrand 
wandering out on Sullivan's Island or near Sullivan's Island, finds the gold bog and parchment next to it, mm. and just, oh, these are, you know, picks these things up. And then in the midst of talking about these to, to his friend, the, 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 the narrator, um, suddenly something, the penny drops, and, and Legrand realizes what, what's going on here. Um, and he does the same as, as, as Tom with Jack. He, he, he mystifies the narrator yeah. by acting in, a, in what seems a rather odd manner. Uh, and then once he's worked all this out, Legrand takes the narrator and, and his, his servant Jupiter out to go and find this this thing. And they, they discover great treasure. And then all is explained again. Mm. It, it's a very similar setup. Mm. Uh, and that setup drawn from Poe is one of the things that distinguishes Sassafali from these other fictions that we talked about coming out of South Africa in that um, uh, Lucky Tom doesn't um, achieve his end through perseverance and luck, as was the tradition in the literature. He achieves it through deduction, deductive reasoning, um, mm. and, and keeps the narrator in the dark. And there are there are moments that just... Uh, uh, leap out. I mean, that, that, that one when Tom realizes what is actually going on. Um, Hurrah, cried Tom, that's better. Whereupon he kicked the blankets into the middle of the room and began pacing up and down with long feverish strides. He's got this almost Holmesian manner to it. And then, and then the, you know, that business about keeping his friend in the dark. Um, the narrator Jack says uh, that he's been quite mystified by his friend, but he says, uh, I had, however, seen so many proofs of my friend's good sense and quickness of apprehension that I thought it quite possible that Wharton's story had had a meaning in his eyes, which I was too obtuse to take in, which, frankly, you could put into virtually any Sherlock Holmes story. Absolutely. Yeah. There's also um, very, very close incidents uh, between the Goldbug and Sasasa Valley, one in, one in particular where... where Tom and Jack are actually out in Sasasa Valley looking for this 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 glow this this mm. what, what the, the the you know the the, the natives of Sasasa Valley and and Dick Wharton have seen as as the eyes of the demon mm. and as 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 Jack is sent to to look for this thing he says I had moved perhaps twenty feet when in a moment it burst upon me through the glowing darkness there shone a small ruddy glowing point the light from which waned and increased flickered and oscillated each change producing a more weird effect than the last. In my excitement, I stepped a pace backwards when instantly the light went out, leaving utter darkness in its place. But when I advanced again, there was the ruddy glare glowing from the base of the cliff. And this, this is similar to when um, Legrand in the Goldbug goes and sits on, on, on the devil's seat. <laughs> yes. And, and he says, yeah, I put myself down to the ledge and found that it was impossible to retain a seat upon it except in one particular position. This fact confirmed my preconceived idea. I proceeded to use the glass. I moved it cautiously up or down until my attention was arrested by a circular rift or opening in the foliage of a large tree that overtopped its fellows in the distance. Having carefully taken the bearings of the tree, I turned homeward. The instant that I left the devil's seat, however, the circular rift vanished. Yeah. So... Very clearly, using the same so, trick. Mm, yeah. Very clear. The other trick that uh, I think you you pick up on there is this one of uh, the trick of the narrator, where um, the, at the point at which it's clear that Tom has deduced something, you shift into a different avenue of uh, of activity. Mm. It's a bit like you know we might call it the Sarasate moment <laughs> in Redheaded League, where you know Holmes has worked out that there's a bank robbery going on. We don't know that. 
as the reader, the narrator doesn't know that, but he goes off and listens to Sarasate for the afternoon. And, uh, and you get exactly the same trick here as well, where the moment that Tom works out something is happening, um, he sort of changes, he changes t- track completely, you know. And now, my boy, said Tom, let's have some supper and a sleep. There's nothing more to be done tonight, but we'll need all our wits and strength for tomorrow. And, and, and one other real area of similarity um, between the, uh, the the Goldbug and Sasasa Valley is this this air of of, of almost supernatural mystery. Mm. Um, in in post story, surprisingly for him, it's not quite as overt as yes. you'd expect. But but when he finds uh, or when, when Legrand finds the Goldbug, there's something very mysterious about this creature. Mm. And and it's it's a combination of two two real types of beetle, uh, one of which has almost a skull imprinted yes. on its back, giving the whole thing an air of 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 of, of morbid weirdness. Mm. Um, that, that's then the, the the bug itself, and particularly with the behaviour of of uh, Legrand's black servant Jupiter, who's who's treats this thing with an almost superstitious awe. Mm. Um, you, you, he builds up this 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 atmosphere, and and you have this in Sasasa Valley, where you know, so many of the people who've seen this this demon um, or the, this red glow think it's a demon, and and then and for those of you who've not read the story yet, close your ears at this point, <laughs> and then we discover that 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 it isn't that there's a perfectly natural explanation for all this. So so. Both stories do that as well, mm. uh, and of course, you know, Peter Haining pointed this out, and and it's quite right that that obviously Conan Doyle will will really reach a peak in this sort of story with the Hand of the Baskervilles. Yeah, and this also brings us into the territory of uh, sort of cursed gems or cu- cursed diamonds too. Oh yes, yeah. This 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 idea that uh, obviously this is another one of these things that that, that Conan Doyle loves, and and mm. obviously we've we've got the uh, the uh, the Great Agra treasure mm. in in the Sign of the Four, where, where the, the, there appears to be a, a curse upon upon that. The Blue Carbuncle, of course, yeah. um, is is another one that that seems to be cursed, and it, it's something that that that's, it's it's one of the, the the staples of 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 this sort of fiction. Uh, another thing he he's bringing in from from Wilkie Collins again, I think. Uh... Oh, yeah, quite definitely. Yes, I mean the the, the Moonstone really did change the game in in so many ways. Mm. And the other great literary influence that goes right back to Conan Doyle's sort of childhood interests is uh, is Bret Hart, of course. And um, Bret Hart, um, the American author, best remembered for sort of popularizing gold rush fiction. So another similar rush uh, as this as this diamond rush that that Conan Doyle is covering here. Um, I mean, Hart lived in San Francisco. He actually arrived five years after the gold rush, uh, and he wasn't a digger himself. He was actually a school teacher and a writer. Um, he achieved great publishing success in uh, 1868 and in fact a lot of it is put down to the creation of the transcontinental railway in north america in 1869 which meant that his works being printed in in uh, in in san francisco and in on the west coast of america were suddenly available on the east coast as as well and uh, uh, he actually in 1871 he traveled east uh, to east new usa and then eventually went on to europe scotland and eventually settled in London in, in 1885, where he wrote some quite significantly different stories we might come on to in a little bit. But, <laughs> but Hart's really remembered for this, uh, for these kind of prospecting stories. 
um, the stories of, of of very much the sort of characters that we have here in Sasasa Valley, uh, and probably the um, the two stories he's most well known for um, are the luck of Roaring Camp and Tennessee's partner, and the luck of Roaring Camp is uh, uh, is about uh, um, a prostitute who's working in one of these um, uh, prospecting. Uh, pop-up prospecting villages, as it were, um, and she dies in childbirth. And the diggers decide to care for the child, which miraculously survives a few months. Um, and they call him Tommy Luck, which obviously has a connection back to the title character here. It's right in the first sentence of this story. And uh, um, Hart followed this up with a, a story the following year called "The Outcasts of Poker Flat," where he took uh, one of the gambler characters, Oakhurst, and made him the main character of that that follow-up one. Um, but the other the other story that was really important was Tennessee's partner, which was about uh, um, two men only known as Tennessee and Tennessee's partner who stick together through all adversity. But what you get in this is um, uh, Bret Hart created a lot of these sort of gold rush archetypes, the roguish outlaw, the charming gambler, the virtuous fallen girl. Um, they all appear in westerns and, and indeed westerns of different ilks. They're, they're in Star Wars as well. Um, uh, but also... Um, dialect, very good use of uh, of dialect and sort of local character, localism, local color within uh, American literature too. And uh, that's something that very clearly influenced Conan Doyle in these early colonial fictions as well. And we don't quite know when Conan Doyle came across Hart, but we know for sure that Hart's first collection of stories, his first major collection, which was The Luck of Roaring Camp and other s- sketches printed in Boston in 1870, was reviewed in the aforementioned Blackwoods Edinburgh Magazine, and um, and actually, when Conan Doyle was uh, a struggling GP at Southsea, his mother said she would send him a sort of care package, which would presumably had a bit of, I think it had a bit of furniture and a bit of food, but also more importantly, books. And uh, Conan Doyle asked Bret Hart for choice, um, and uh, Conan Doyle had this to say on Hart when it came to uh, through the magic door in 1907. He said. Uh, Hart was one of those great short storytellers who proved himself incapable of a longer flight. He was always like one of his own gold miners who struck a rich pocket but found no continuous reef. The pocket was, alas, a very limited one, but the gold was of the best. The luck of Roaring Camp and Tennessee's partner are both, I think, worthy of a place among my immortals. They are, it is true, so tinged with Dickens as to be almost parodies of the master, but they have a symmetry and satisfying completeness as short stories to which Dickens ne- himself never attained. Um, the man who can read these two stories without a gulp in his throat is not a man I envy. And in fact, when Conan Doyle did his American tour in the in the mid-1890s, uh, he at one point gave an interview where he said that uh, he knew Tennessee's partner and the luck of Roaring Camp off by heart. So, you know, the, this was a story that really heavily influenced him. And if you think about the other fictions that follow rapidly on the heels of Sasasa Valley. The American tale is an, is a peculiar one in that it's uh, set in uh, North America, but has a, a sort of Englishman figure within that one. But the others are set in British colonial possessions in South Australia, South Africa, in the case of uh, Sasasa Valley. And you get very much the sort of echoes of Bret Hart in uh, The Gully of Blumenstike or My Friend the Murderer, um, particularly in the gully of Blumenstein, where there is a sheriff of sorts called uh, Chicago Bill, who feels like he has been pulled straight away out of a, out of a Bret Hart novel. And the other two influences that I can, I think you can feel in here are um, uh, possibly a little bit of Mark Twain, another, mm-hmm. another writer associated with the gold rush, 
um, who actually knew Bret Hart and hated him um, <laughs> to the point where his his uh, lasting commentary on uh, on Bret Hart is quite something to read. And um, and also Main Reed, who we talked about in episode thirteen on the refugees as being a particular influence on on that story. Um, Conan Doyle did actually get to, I think, have dinner with Bret Hart in uh, in London, but doesn't seem to have had much engagement with him. And by then, Hart had moved on into very different type of of uh, literary output. I mean, there are a number of points which which arise from this this influence of of, of Bret Hart and 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 Poe is is this this the way that Conan Doyle is so influenced by American writers. Yeah. At this 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 time, and started with with Main Reed when uh, when when Doyle was a boy enjoying his his adventure stories, and mm. and then you know going to more sophisticated levels with with Edgar Allan Poe and and, and Bret Hart, and this this stayed with him. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously these sort of stories influence you know, studying Scarlet. Mm. Uh, there's there's very much that 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 feel the the the, the, the Bret Hart. Western field, it's it's religious pioneers yeah. rather than prospectors in this. But the, yeah, it's 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 a similar sort of frontier spirit. Yes, that, that that's informing those, and and this this stays with with Doyle you, you, through to I mean the the value of fear, mm. um, nineteen seventeen. It's it's he's still interested in these sorts of stories and and. The, 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 these communities and the the, 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 the the sinister undertow yes of these communities really really pulls at him um, and, and the other thing which you, you can really get uh, and we have touched on this already with 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 the canon is is this this idea of of, of partners mm. and 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 this the the, the, the 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 buddy act the double act which which you know he he does bring to a degree of perfection with with Holmes and Watson yes so in many ways Conan Doyle was paying tribute to Bret Hart in in uh, Valley um, and the the compliment would be repaid in a in in one way in that uh, Bret Hart would go on to write a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes uh, he wrote uh, the stolen cigar case featuring Hemlock Jones which came out in 1900 and and on the topic of Watson again I mean one of the other piece of writing by Conan Doyle that relates back to I think Bret Hart is this rather obscure play Angels of Darkness the unfinished play which has many connections to um, a study in Scarlet it's you know there was a lot of debate as to whether it was written before or after and I think Chris Roden came up with the um, uh, suggestion that uh, it might have started out as a as a a story that was uh, an independent story and then the Mormon section from a study in Scarlet was added in after a study in Scarlet, but um, that that story, that play, unfinished three act play, was uh, famous because it has a character called Doctor Watson, who's a San Francisco doctor. And so, there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not that was the you know the first appearance of uh, uh, of Doctor Watson, if if indeed the play was written before a study in Scarlet. The biggest sort of non-American influence on Conan Doyle around this time, of course, is Robert Louis Stevenson, and probably the most obvious connection there is with uh, the Dynamiter from more new arabian nights which came out in 1885 and uh you see evidence of that you know being pulled into study in scarlet and uh um but again similar kind of use of sort of local characters local color that's kind of uh, frontier landscape uh prospectors struggle on the fringes of of society um these are kind of the adventure novels that that conan doyle the adventure stories that conan doyle was really interested in growing up and, and and Stevenson himself 
had actually gone out to that part of the world when he, he went to America um, in, in in pursuit of, of, of Fanny van der Grift, who would later become his wife. Mm. Um, and he, he went by rail across the whole of, of, of North America from, from east to west uh, and spent quite some time in San Francisco. Mm. Soaking up the, uh, the the atmosphere of of, of that part of America at, at that time, uh, and this this all comes out in in the uh, in the dynamiter, and and it, it, it's in itself another hugely uh, hugely influential book. And um, Arthur Macken loved this book as well, and in his um, 1895 decadent classic, The Three Imposters, mm. uh, there is an, an episode called the, the Novel of the Dark Valley. Which is is very definitely the in in that same sort of territory again, and um, an, an, another homage to to this sort of fiction. Hmm. So all in all, this is a really uh, it's a really interesting piece of work. It's clearly apprentice work um, from a, a, a very promising um, new author, but I think it's got a lot of lot of inherent merit. Yes, it's a, it's a great story in its own right, and. It, it's it, it's not entirely satisfying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there are there are gaps in the story where it, it seems to leap to conclusions. And, yes. And it, 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 one thing where it is very much the opposite to the gold bug is it's it's a rip roaring race through story without too much explanation. Mm. Um, and perhaps Doyle looked at the gold bug and thought it's a bit long and there's a bit too much explanation and it, it so he, he was trying to avoid that you do get the gist of the story that you no essential information is really left out mm. um so it, yeah it's well structured and it, it's an enjoyable read mm. um but it, it's also you know of, of, of great interest because it, it's it's pointing the way to the future we, we've got this this love of these sort of adventure stories which is is going to come out more and more throughout the 1880s with with the the stories that you've been mentioning uh, influenced by Bret Hart and and you've also got this this partnership between the two main characters mm. which really is pointing the way towards you know the, the the eventual outcome with 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 Holmes and Watson so it it's it's a story that that yeah I would quite definitely recommend anyone really interested in 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 Doyle and in Holmes um that they should read yeah so that brings us to the end of this episode. If you would like to find the show notes, they can be found at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, then check out our Patreon page, uh, which is patreon.com forward slash doingsofdoyle. And we've got a special guest next time. So who are we talking to, Paul? We'll be talking to uh, Professor Douglas Kerr, who is the general editor of the Edinburgh Conan Doyle New Critical Editions, uh, for which he has written an introduction to Memories and Adventures, Conan Doyle's autobiography. Uh, And this earned him one of the inaugural Doylean Honours Awards earlier in the year. Excellent. And that will be a great conversation with Douglas. So please join us for that at the end of September. Uh, Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. can give you diamonds.